Declan Tyrrell is the CFO whisperer. And before I go into any further detail around that, Declan, what is the CFO whisperer? Tell us your story. Oh, thanks a little bit. Look, it's, it's great to be here. So what is the CFO whisperer? I essentially help salespeople. And I help salespeople have that conversation with the CFO of their customer, the one they're trying to sell to. That's what I do background and stuff like that, which we can talk about later, but that's primarily how I help. Now, I help in three ways, very simply. I, what I call, I inspire them, I show them, and I coach them. So inspire, I do a lot of keynotes, talk on a lot of all hands. I talk to a lot of sales teams about inspiring them to believe they already have everything they need to engage and excite the CFO or that economic buyer, if you like. I show you, I've got a number of workshops from 40 to tears with all of them, but a lot of that is about demystifying the world of the CFO. Yeah. Why they are, for example, at the moment, with such a huge focus on cost-cutting, it's a lot of deals are being scrutinized or renewed scrutiny around financial outcomes, and that can delay or even derail a lot of deals. And then the last thing is we coach you. So I run what I call deal clinics, where you bring real deals. You bring real deals, we strategize. I've got some analyst tools, which I use to compare the financial performance of your customer with their market, with their main competitors, and try and find what I call the North Star. That one reason that will make it easier for everyone within that customer to say yes. And when I say everyone, what I mean is, there's actually two buying processes. I talk a lot about buying rather than selling. The two buying processes are, one, you find a person with the problem that you're solving. That's always been the case. It used to be the only part. You find them, you make them happy, and bum away you go. We now, once you've done that, you then got to empower them to influence their internal stakeholders to allow this project to happen. That's where the real buying and selling happens. Mm. And that's where it's what I call navigating your customer's buying process is a far more effective approach than trying to sell. Anyway, it's long-winded, but that's the CFO. Beautiful. So we're talking about sensing and responding to the needs of the CFO and providing salespeople with strategies to really help them in, engage and have influence, and as you say, inspire their, their buyer to take action. Um, tell us a little bit about your own background, Ed, and what brought you to the work that you do today. I think it would be helpful for people to kind of understand your journey, yeah? Yeah, but look, it's strange. It's Look, I'm a former CFO, as I often say. I wasn't born CFO. I came up through the ranks. I've been everything from finance manager. I've been financial controller, group finance director, chief financial officer, and I'm holding out for emperor of finance. That's the title. <laughs> Uh, when I worked in Google, I was called the CFO Whisperer. In Oracle, when I worked there, I was finance evangelist. So my background is very much finance, but not just finance. I mean, like, it's really, it was change. So I've done a lot of restructuring. I've done a lot of merger and, and acquisition activity where we're kind of bringing two businesses together or we're acquiring businesses at pace. So change has really been 
at the core of what I do. And then I accidentally fell in uh, to the tech space where there's actually a, a guy who you know well, uh, Eamon, who I used to play football with. And he asked me one day what I did. And I told him I was a CFO. And he went, okay, he said, I'm a sales trainer. I do a thing every month for onboarding where I pretend to be a CFO. I said, okay. I said, well, can you teach me how to sell? I just set up a new uh, change consultancy business. And he said, uh, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. Let me I'll see if I can get you onto this week-long training in exchange for you coming and role-playing as a CFO. And I mean, let's have some fun. I just handed a case study. This is your company. It's three or four pages of a case study. But of course, I had 25 years of experience behind that. And I brought it to new depths and new levels. Loved it. I have to say, getting mm. that sales work, absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, they fell in love with me. And it went from a one-off to a monthly event to at one stage, I think I was doing three weeks a month working with around a whole range of different things. But that brought me into that sales world, which then brought me into that kind of Deal review, deal, I call them clinics. I, the reason I call them clinics rather than reviews, I don't want you to turn up and try and convince me that your deal is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me where it hurts, um, then we can look to move it. And, and if, if I might, I, I'll give you one quick example here. Last year, what did I have through the clinic? I had over 300 deals come through the clinic with revenue of $2.3 billion. I'll give you one example. We had a sales uh, person came to me and said, look, we're trying to sell the digital native, into a digital native. They really want to buy. I'm pushing a five-year commit, which as you know, in cloud, that's the customer saying, I'm definitely going to consume X amount of your cloud services over the next five years. And they won't sign. There's, we're, we're out of bypass. This thing is stuck. Can you help I said, okay, tell me what you know about the customer. We did a little bit of research. I have my analytic tools. I had a little look and I went, okay, it looks like these are setting up to do an IPO, to launch onto the stock exchange later in this year. They said, yes, that's right. I said, well, then they can't do a five-year I said, I, I want to buy, but you can't do a five-year deal. So if they do a five-year deal, that's what we call a long-term commitment. And that is a liability, which goes onto your balance sheet which when you go IPO, the calculation of your share price as you launch will be damaged by that long-term commitment. I said, can't do it. I said, I wouldn't do it. Do it, well, what can we do? Because of course the salesperson was rewarded based on the commit. So they wanted five years to get more uh, commission, et cetera. I said, look, they ain't doing it. Give the customer what they need. Now let's be realistic here. They need something, they need a one-year deal. That's what they need to get off and running. But the amount of time and effort they're investing in moving everything across, they're not running away. So if you like what you can talk to them about is one plus five. So get everything set up at the one. It means they pay higher. It means they don't get all the benefits that they would from a five-year deal. You can work with, and you can't get any, because even if they, if they give, if they sign something that says, yes, we will do a five-year, that's the same as a six-year commitment. So you can't do that. You can't talk about it. And you can start negotiation. And you can actually line that five-year deal up uh, now and get it as one plus five. Now, they took that back to the customer and the customer bit their hand off. It gave them mm-hmm. what they needed to do. So that's just kind of a bit of an example. Yeah. Of bring it, bring something that's broke. Don't, anyone that tells me their deal is beautiful, I, I okay, well, what do you do? Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, but this is one of the things I really love about what you offer to salespeople because... So often, when you're on a forecast call with your leader and all the expectations in the organization, there is a, a tendency sometimes to 
big up the deal and make it that beautiful deal in order to maintain the you know the internal sponsorship and support for it. And I love what you do in terms of really stripping all that away and let's really look at where we are at today. Because until we fully accept where we're at, we're not really going to have that transformational change. And then also being able to help reps quickly close the gap with viable strategies. So listening to what they're doing at the, at the current moment in time and giving them that reality check is, again, from the buyer's perspective and introducing new approaches that can rapidly help them close that gap to um, to closing the deal. Which I see a lot of salespeople doing with their sales management. Mm. What I'm really about is come and tell me where the problem is. Tell me where it hurts. Absolutely. And look, it's what I keep saying to people is, we don't buy to help you meet your quota. That's not, we don't, that's, we're not here to make you look good. We buy because we have to. So although lots of salespeople are really good at answering what I would call the three fundamental questions. Why should they do anything? Why should they do it now? And why should they do it with you? I find a lot of salespeople focus on one and three. Why should they do anything? I hear a lot of why they should do some stuff. But they should always do some stuff. But they don't. And then I hear a lot about why now. And look, it's not just a tech space. It's every sales organization I've ever come across paranoid about their competitors. Mm. Our competitors are doing this. Blah, 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 blah. I tell you, as a buyer, I'm not as concerned about your competition as you are. Now, if I know you are, I will leverage it in my negotiation. But mm. I am not as uppity about it as you are. The key one for me is why now? Mm. Because that gives you a truer insight into what really needs to happen and where the power is within this decision. Yeah. It's because it's if you know if you don't understand why, and the why now is often it's often a change in the customer's environment. And that could be new CEO, new CIO, they've just hired a chief transformation officer, they've had a bad year, they've had a good year. Anything can happen. I worked on a deal last year where this particular again deal was stuck, but this particular customer, I looked at their share price. And I always look at two time frames, five years and one year. When I look at a five-year time frame for, for share value, you often see whether or not this industry has been disrupted. And it's not a huge amount of technology disruption in, in the last 10 years or so. It's been absolutely phenomenal. So you can see whether this industry has been disrupted. And then I look at the last 12 months to see what they're doing about it. So is it still kind of free-falling or is it climbing back up? And one particular customer we'd looked, they had share price had dropped 26% in the previous 12 months, while their two main competitors had grown by 10% and 14%. Mm. That was the compelling reason for them to do something now. Nothing to do with yeah. the solution, nothing to do with how beautiful or cool you think your solutions are. That was to do with the creating a sense of urgency that their executives could buy into because of the paranoia they have about their competition. Yeah. I, I love this focus on connecting to the necessity within the customer's environment because we talk a lot in sales about um, understanding the, the needs and the wants of your client. But it's quite often that the customer will want something or will need something and they still won't do anything. Yes. Right? This idea would, I must do it now, right? That compelling event, that necessity that is so crucial and connecting the client to that. Uh, because ultimately, in the end of the day, any sale as a process of change is painful. <laughs> so what's going to make you do it? It's that necessity that you must do it now. So talk to me a little bit about how you, you mentioned you have a background in change management. I believe that sales is all about getting customers to change and make a change. Tell me a little bit about how you 
talk about this idea of selling change. Yeah? For me, I have the kind of the conversation you need to have with your customer. And I call it discovery. You know, it's called many things. You call it what you like. For me, first thing is mindset. It's not confrontational. It doesn't have to be from a sales, you know, salesperson to buyer, just holding the cards. That can't happen anymore. The, buying is too complex and too difficult. Selling has been complex and difficult. I mean, you've worked in plenty of organizations. I've yet to see any organization that makes their sales process easy, which is why you get chaos around month end, quarter end, half year, year end, with who's able to authorize discount or this one. It's absolutely crazy. And a similar complexity on the buying side. So if we look at buying now for complex deals, has anything from 25 to 75 people touching the decision. Now, you can't get that level of coverage. Like that's, mm. that, that's just absolutely crazy. So for me, the first thing is mindset. Do you need it? You can establish that. How or if I can help you now. If we can establish that early, now all of a sudden we're working together because mm. you as a salesperson need to help them understand how to navigate your, your sales process while they need to help us navigate their buying process. Because you can start on the wrong track in relation to doing a deal, and which means it's doomed to failure. And you yeah. can work all the way along. The, the, the easiest example I can give you here is particularly around cloud, where you have, in the past, we had a lot of capital expenditure, so buying data centers, buying hardware, that's one thing. And then you would have now a lot of the cloud consumption stuff is on the face of it looks like an operational cost. If you start off, if you don't understand how, and I say two questions, should they do the project, yes or no? Yes, okay, how should we structure the deal? That question needs to be asked early, and it needs to be asked early for a number of reasons. One is because that question is often answered by different parts of the business. Yeah. So you may be talking into an IT department who needs a data center or needs something else, Whereas it may be procurement, a buying committee, or the office of the CFO who will say yes or no ultimately to how the deal is structured. And that capex opex argument are just, and here's the thing three, four years ago, cloud was opex. That was it. Mm -hmm. It was opex. Accountants didn't like to do anything else with it. The regulation, all the international accounting standards, all of this. That's all changed now. So you can now structure a cloud deal so that it is CapEx rather than OpEx. So not 100%, depending on, on what way you approach it. And okay. that can have huge implications. And I'll just give you one real example here. If we take, there's a thing in our, in our income statement or a profit and loss account called EBITDA. So it's, it's basically a profit, but it's earnings before, this is the key word, earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. What that means in the real world is if I have a CapEx, uh, a capital expenditure program, and I as an executive am rewarded on EBITDA, which is not unusual, it's, it's quite a common way, then I don't care about capital expenditure because depreciation comes in after my performance has been calculated and my bonus has been calculated and then I've been paid. If we move that CapEx item to an operational expense, it goes above the line. So although we're now saying you're far better off moving from capital expenditure to operation expenditure um, for your organization as a whole, but you individually as an executive are going to lose a million dollars a month. 
That's a tough ask. You're getting any executives to... Uh... Now, none of them will say, I don't want to do this because it's CapEx v. OpEx is going to happen. But they'll find it. You'll hear CFOs, you'll hear CEOs say the cloud's not secure. So they have the cloud. I have yeah. security. It's, uh, yeah. And often we raise these, what on the surface seem like technical objections, but they're not. They're, mm. not. they're not actually, actually financial objections. Yeah, I understand. So in many ways, what you're helping the sales people do is to increase their ability to calibrate when they're with the um, CFO, to listen more closely for what it is that they're hearing with greater distinctions. So as you say, what may appear as a security objection actually is a financial challenge yeah, and getting them to be able to kind of understand that so that then they're able to respond in a way that addresses the concern that's there. Not the concern that might be there, but the actually deeper level concern because they, they're able to understand and therefore tailor their message to the client in greater detail. I, absolutely. So I, I always say just two things. One is mindset. The mindset is yeah. stop selling and look for buyers. Yeah. Find yeah. the buyer. And like it, just that kind of pivot of mindset mm. drives a completely different connection with your customer. Because you yeah. now have to ask questions rather than tell. You know, yeah. a wise man said to me a long time ago, telling is not selling. This, I totally agree with this. This is why I often say to, um, to salespeople that the idea of selling in and of itself can actually be get in the way. I think a far better frame is we're here to serve our clients. Yes. You know, we're here to really listen to what it is that they're looking to achieve and talk about what we can give them and how we can contribute to their business in a way that's going to add value. Um, so sensing and responding to what specifically are the needs, because ultimately it's trust-based relationships that we want to develop. It's empathy that we want to get. The customer experience is the difference that makes the difference. How does the customer feel about us? You know, and um, are they in love with us, right? Because in many ways, that's what I see sales as. It's a way of making love to the client, right? Uh, you know, if we can really serve and be there to respond, you know, to what it is that's most important to them in a way that delivers value and develops trust for the long term. Well, there's two words you mentioned there, which I use a lot, uh, trust and credibility. Um, your trust is built through listening, not through talking, um, but it's listening to understand, not listening to respond. A lot of people listen to respond. They hear key words. Oh, I see an opportunity to jump in early. No, 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 no. You listen to understand. And your credibility is built through what you ask, not what you tell. Mm. And that's, that's what, I, what I do with people is help them find those questions, that mm. one, two, three questions that have that CFO going. That's mm. okay. Now they, and what that does is it bridges the gap on that credibility. Now, what I say to people all the time, finance people don't expect salespeople to have the same level of finance experience as they do. I don't talk to a salesperson and say, let's have the same, let's have a peer-to-peer -peer conversation and let's have a conversation around finance and capping. No, that's yeah. not what it's about. If, as a CFO, any executive for that matter, agrees to meet a salesperson, we assume you're credible to begin with. Only here's one of the traps that a lot of salespeople fall into. If they're not used to talking to a CFO, what they'll often do is they'll say, oh, I'm not credible. I better vomit my... Um, CV or my experience up onto them to prove that I'm credible to be here. The quickest way to lose your credibility is to reach for it. Mm. I'll mm. And, and I'm a big fan of what I call straightforward communication, not to be confused with direct. 
This is not telling the customer they're stupid if they don't buy with you. I've had plenty of people try that. For me, it's never worked for me, but straightforward I get. The shorter the question, the longer the answer you'll get. The longer your question, typically the shorter answer you get. Don't ask me questions to try and impress me. Look to inspire, not impress. When you do that, that is where it, you turn it into what I call an interesting conversation. I'm, it's yeah. great for me to talk to you, as opposed to me listening to you tell me how cool you think you are or how cool you think your services are. Yeah, love this. Be more interested than interesting. So with that in mind, can you give me an example when you were a buyer yourself of an interaction with a salesperson that really inspired you? And was it that really sparked that inspiration? So where I was, yeah, okay, that's really good. So after this is going back to, yeah, I was CFO of a law firm many moons ago, and my remit was to transform them from the practice of law to the business of law. That's what we were, that's what I was there to do. So again, it was a huge, I came out of a PLC into a law, a big international law firm, blah, blah, blah. and we had, we had five kind of key businesses. Four of them were okay. One of them, our main ERP system, we struggled getting data into it, we struggled getting data out of it. And I had a number of, if you like, account managers with this particular vendor who every time they spoke to me, they were defensive. They, took, they tried to, I was the only one that ever had this problem. The system couldn't do what I wanted it to do, which was nonsense because I had done this multiple times before. I'm going, you don't know how to do it. That's one thing. Um, I, I mean, it was absolutely horrible. And I ended up with this account manager came along. And I'll never forget, he, this, this was the fourth account manager I had had in a 12 months. I was seen as a difficult, I was a difficult buyer because I knew what I wanted. And when the salespeople didn't give it to me, I didn't buy into the BS that a lot of them were kind of the corporate kind of messaging nonsense. So this person called me and said, Declan, I'm your new account manager. I'd like to come and meet you. I said, you've got to be kidding me. He said, what? I said, another one? He said, are you for real? I said, why should I meet you? He said, well, I'm your account manager. I said, well, what's an account manager do? So he articulated what an account manager is. And I said, okay. Have you changed the role definition in your organization? Because none of your predecessors have done that. And he just said to me, I'll never forget this person said to me, Declan, I take it there are some issues. He said, I'm not going to apologize for what's gone before me, who's gone before me. I'm going to ask you for an opportunity for me to demonstrate my value through my actions. Will you give me that opportunity? I said, I will. I said, okay, in my office next week. And when he came in, what really he started to not just kind of tell me about, say, look, here's what we do. The best people I've ever seen articulate how to use particular software or whatever it is you're buying tends to come from users, not from salespeople. Salespeople don't mm. use this stuff too, as often, uh, if at all. It tends to start to connect me with people. So he brought in and he said, you're looking to do this. Why are you only looking to do this? And he kind of stress tested my ambition for the future. And this, this I really like, because most salespeople will sacrifice ambition for speed. Mm -hmm. They'll sacrifice a big deal to get a small deal now. And now some of that's to do with the structure of sales departments. Maybe you lose, you know, your accounts get swapped out once every 12 months, or you get new territories and all this type of thing. I never, I, I kind of get it. Why, particularly in uh, companies which are growing quickly, why that has to be done. But, oh my God, it doesn't really do the buyer any good. But this person really challenged me 
around how ambitious I was being for the transformation that I was doing. And that, I went, okay, even, it didn't even have to be right, it just had to be interesting. And started as that connected me with certain things. He showed me certain stuff which he had come across somewhere in his organization, some outside. And then he connected me with some really super users, if you like, of their technology who had done different things with it. And that kind of went, okay, I like talking to this person. And when I talk mm-hmm. to this person, they bring something new. As I say to people, demonstrating you understand my business will get you to the table, but it won't keep you there. Mm-hmm. Having a vision of the future, having a point of view doesn't even have to be right you just have to have an interesting point of view that's where it sparks the interesting conversation which then ultimately or quite often ends up with something special being created and then delivered Mm. there's three things that really stand out for me for that story that you've just um relayed the first one is this idea that uh it's not the propaganda people speak it's the actions behind them that is really crucial in terms of demonstrating you know commitment and demonstrating uh you know uh, credibility uh, we're engaging with with our clients and so when your seller said to you don't judge me by my words judge me by my actions and then follow through on that i think that's a really important message message to mark um the second one then is this idea of um really looking to explore the ambition rather than go for the immediate deal. And for me, that talks about movement away from a self-orientation when we're thinking about what's important for me in terms of my organization and my expectations upon me and hitting my number and all the internal stuff. And we start to move our focus towards a one of service towards the client because that's crucial for the trust equation. You know, does the client feel that we're coming in it in terms of a self-orientation or do we are we in service to the client? And so that really opens up. And then the third one is this idea of the vision for the future. And how can we as sellers become co-creators with the client of that vision for the future? Because it is a process of collective dreaming. We are co-creating. We're dreaming together with the client. And I think if we can really engage in that process in a meaningful way, that really then begins to ignite the the inspiration for the client. Because we bring a real value to the table as a thinking partner. Look, I love it. And it's... What can I say? Sometimes buyers don't know how to buy. Mm-hmm. And they can see what they want, but they struggle to influence their internal stakeholders to allow this thing to happen. I've seen it time and time again. My last role, I actually did a lot of buying for the organization because we didn't know how to buy. I mean, it was absolutely mm-hmm. crazy. And sometimes my interventions and deals, like I, I'll still talk to a lot of customers, it's they don't know how to do it. And I go, okay, well, yeah. You know, and then you kind of start breaking it down and then you start structuring it in a way that makes it easy for them to say yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, Declan, given your background and then moving from the buying role into supporting salespeople on the other side of the table, what have been some of the uh, biggest shifts that have happened for you in terms of your own level of awareness and then how you've adjusted and adapted your behavior over the years. Um, I'm just curious about what some of those insights and breakthroughs were for you as you've come and have gone through uh, your career. What I would say, the complexity around buying has, like buying is someone, you know, if you're selling technology, for example, the CIO or the CTO had a budget, as long as they did something that was within the budget, no one cared, and you win. But that's not gone. So what I'd say here, the way I normally articulate this, change has always been here. What we're now seeing is a different type of change. 
So we used to change from a current state to a new state. So that meant I have a problem, I need to fix the problem. Therefore, we need to find a solution that's fit for purpose for today. And then we go to a new normal and we carry on. That's now gone. What we're now seeing is changing from a current state to an ever-changing state. That's a game changer. That means we're now looking at solutions which are fit for purpose for tomorrow, and we don't know what tomorrow looks like. So now it's less about the features, function, benefits of the solution, and more about the, the innovative approach of the vendor that you're working with, their openness, their agileness, mm-hmm. their vision, that becomes an awful lot of more about future-proofing your organization than it is about fixing problems today. That's one of the biggest, I'd say, shifts that's happened. And this is kind of why you see executives involved in, in even in smaller deals a lot earlier, because a lot of change going on, a lot of it is strategic in nature. So it's not that we're coming in here to make sure this particular project is done well. We're making sure this is having the impact on the business that we want it to. Because if it doesn't, then we're going to have to pit. That, and that's different. And even if I give you, I give you, a, I give you an example about. So we used to buy you would someone identify a problem. So let's say I go, oh, I've identified a problem here. I'd, I'd like to start a project to fix it. Now I would have to do a little, put something together. I might have to go and see, say, a system steering committee. I'd have to pitch the idea to the system steering committee, and they might say, you know what, Declan, you might have something here. Go and do a feasibility study. Now, I might get a bit of budget to do that, and I go off and I got to do a feasibility study on the type of impact it's going to have, look at what's in the market, who's out there, and everything else, all the rest of it, and then I come back with a project proposal. That project proposal would then go and say, yeah, okay, you can have that. Now I got to start the evaluation and selection process. So now we, we go to market and we invite people to come in and we do our beauty parades, and then we get to, we might go from five to three. Uh, to one prepared supplier who we don't tell the other one yet that are out of the race yet until we get everything across because we want to use them for negotiation and all of this, blah, 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 and we get it. Then we go, cool, we sign the PO, and then we start the implementation process. And that's a lengthy process. So that means from identifying a problem to actually going live with a solution can be 12 months, can be 18 months, can be two years. Now, the problem with the pace of change at the moment, that's too long. So we can't do that anymore. And I'd also say the amount of projects, IT projects and software projects in particular, which didn't work. And the problem wasn't that the solution didn't work. It didn't work for us. And that's because they didn't understand enough about their complex business environment to be able to wrap their solution around it. It was more of a, we're selling you the box, you go and work it out. And and that's where all types of relationships have broken down uh, over the years between buyers and sellers. It's that, uh, well, we were only selling you a toolkit, and I thought I was buying it completed uh, something or other. And then we get into all types of, of mismatch of expectation, which can only damage the relationship. Yeah, yeah. So it's really about helping the client deliver an outcome, right? So you're going to give a tool set, but how does that tool set work specifically within the client's business in order to be able to deliver the specific outcome that the client is looking for? And how can you quickly start to move forward in a uh, trial and error kind of process there rather than some big kind of waterfall project? So I, I guess the kind of agile approach is, in, you know, in terms of let's start small and then grow from there and 
Yeah, yeah look, that, that's one way. It can go big. I don't mind. Like, you do need to test the customer's resolve and you do need to stress test their ambition. Will what they're planning to do get them where they need to get? Because what you get in a lot of customers, a lot of buyers, our vision of the future is often restricted by our experience of the past. This is where salespeople need to come in and inspire. This is where they need to come in and say, well, look, other customers have used this in a different way or the same problem they've solved it in a different way. And you need to kind of, you need to really look to, that's that collaboration piece that you mentioned earlier. That kind of, that, bring that inspiration. Now we'll find something really exciting uh, to go and do. Fantastic. Now, let me give you, I'll give you a quick example of that though. And, and again, yeah, so and I won't give you the name of the customer. I spoke to a particular customer and they had, this is a little bit of accounting speak. So you have multiple different finance. You might end up with multiple finance systems because you've acquired multiple companies. And, and within these, the structure of these finance systems is called a chart of accounts. So it's kind of like how it's structured. How do you capture your data? And it could be like different data sets, if you like. This particular customer had 129 different chartered accounts with 2 billion transactions flowing through. It was absolutely crazy. And they wanted to do something exciting. They really wanted to do something. They didn't want to do just, they didn't want to kind of, they didn't have a little problem. They wanted to do something exciting. They wanted to be heroes. They wanted to kind of really do something really, really cool in their organization. So we said, okay, let, let's have a look at this. And I remember we had, we had six of us on the call from our side. We had sales rep, we had a key account director, we had cloud engineer, we had their manager. We, I mean, this thing, and me, and I'm going, please don't open your mouth. Just, I don't mind asking questions, but don't speak. We've got 40 minutes with the customer. I think yeah. the customer spoke for 35 minutes of it. Mm. But early on, they were talking about, I said, what do you really want? They said, we want financial insight. And I said, okay. If I give you financial insights in the morning, what then? Well, what do you mean? I said, I give you financial insights in the morning. What next? What do you do with them? They said, I'm not sure. I said, do you have the capability and experience in-house to take these financial insights and to drive a positive back in your business? They said, no, we don't. I said, okay. I said, that's not unusual. I said, they said we have four data scientists in this organization. I said, okay. This transformation journey that you're going on with your data, our piece, the software piece, that doesn't work. So that's not a problem. But the people piece and the process piece, they're the other, there's kind of three legs to this change. If you don't get them right, then us giving you software is just going to, it's going to frustrate you because it's yeah. not going to have the desired answer. So you're going to need a plan for this and you're going to need a plan for this. And, then, and we can talk to you about that. We, we won't get, we don't, can't sell you the solutions to that. But we can certainly process, we can introduce you to people that can help on that. And on the people side, we can talk to you about change and we can introduce you to best practice where this has been done before. And then I have some experience in huge amounts of change with people, etc. That was the clincher. Like that was an early question that won their hearts and minds. They kind of went, okay, mm. you get it. It was straight away, okay, you get it. And I mm. again, I'm almost kind of saying, I don't want to sell you this until you have a plan for these two things. Yeah, and, and yeah. that you now you can imagine the salespeople were going. No, I, I wasn't carrying a bag. We're nearly having heart attacks in the background. <laughs> but as I say, often you got to slow down the speed up. Yeah, yeah. And that, intake, yeah. Absolutely, that approach got the trust and credibility of that customer um, much much quicker than any demo ever would have. 
which mm-hmm. enabled us to move quite quickly on that. And that was the thing that and I kept saying, why can't we do things quickly? <laughs> Everyone keeps mm-hmm. putting barriers in the way of doing things quickly. I'm not saying every deal can you know, start on a Monday, close on a Friday, but when, did the, when does the business need to address? Because I can tell you, if often we're trying to fix a problem where there might be leakage or a lack of productivity in, in the organization, and you can calculate how much it's costing you for every day you, you, you delay. And I came across mm. this tactic. I just, if, if I'll, I'll sidetrack a little bit. One of the, had a great uh, salesperson deal with me one day. And we won't bore you to tear with the whole thing, but they brought me through what I call a closing corridor. And they got to the end and they went, here's the price. They had got everyone kind of agreeing all the way along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of mm. yes, lots of yes, lots of yes, and that and that. And they went to the CEO first, who they seen was kind of inspiring around this stuff. And any reason why you can't see us progressing? No, let's do it. And came to me last. I was fuming. And I went, I'm not paying that amount of money for it. And they said, Declan, we thought you might say that. We've got one more slide just for you. Click the button, $10,000 on the slide. They said, you know what that number is? I said, no. They said, that's how much it's costing you every day you delay making your decision based on your business case. (laughs) I said, I'm still not paying that for it. They said, okay. Is everyone happy to proceed? Subject to agreeing with Declan. Okay. And everyone was out of that. And they said, when do you want to do it? Of course, I'm few. I go, do it now. We do it now. Yeah. Uh, and as everyone left the room, they said, okay, Declan, we anticipate. You know the price already has built in the normal discounts, the normal thing that you're going mm. to get. All of that's built in there. What I've got agreement for is an extra 8% that I give you. Is that enough for you? If it's not, I've got to go back into our organization I have mm. got to put together a business case and all this type of thing to justify anything above that. And that's going to take 40. Now that's 46 mm. weeks, $10,000. Mm-hmm. That's the cost of The 8%, it got me under the number I wanted to. I said, look, it's close. Because I had an idea mm. in my head around mm. what it was. I needed to get it under that, which to say that I got it close to it. And with a little bit of a push, we got it under it. But that's where the deal was done. Now, obviously, there was legals and contracts and everything else to follow. Mm. But that's where the emotional deal was done. That's where it was. Mm. Yeah, that's enough. Okay, now let's crack on. Now you're progressing to the rest of it with perp. Mm. And the amount of people that get drawn into a buying process, contracts and everything else, where you don't even know if you're doing it or not yet. That, to me, is absolutely crazy. The earlier you get stuck in, as I say, the power of no, I talk about. It's embrace that word no. The quicker you get to it, the quicker you will bring clarity, credibility to the process. And once you have that, you can then speed it. Yeah, I think this is so important because you understand where the boundaries are on both sides. And, you know, it's extending beyond boundaries often is where you're trying to work, you know, both in terms of what's possible for the seller's organization to move towards the client and also what's client in terms of client to move towards it. So best get there as soon as possible, as you say. I, I want to go back to the story you told just before that, because there's a question chain that you went through there, I, I think is such a beautiful one. I use it quite a lot in my own coaching, but I've seen it very effective as well in the sales motion. First of all, what do you want? So they tell you whatever story that they're going to tell you about what do they want. And then you pause and you ask them, what do you really want? <laughs> right? And that, that takes them down to the kind of the why behind it. And then it connects them to the emotional side of things. And then once you get there, okay, what needs to happen? Right. And then and the kind of the story you related. So, right. Well, we need to also think about these people process element of it as well. And, you know, therefore, we need to pause 
as I said, before we can start to move quicker as we take into consideration these things. I think it's a beautiful question, Chen. I just want to mark it because I think it's very, very effective as well to help sellers just drop a little bit deeper when they're engaged with their clients. Well, look, everyone talks about customer empathy, you know, customer centricity and everything else. But if you tell me you're customer centric and then your questions don't match that, then yeah. your credibility, your trust and credibility is damaged. And the example I often give there is, you know, I've had plenty of people tell me, Declan, we're, we're all about the customer. We lead mm-hmm. customer first. We lead to a solution, not with a solution. It's all about you. And I go, well, that's touching. It's beautiful. Any questions for me? Yes. How much money do you have to spend? And when can you spend it with me? <laughs> you know? It's not a very customer empathy, yeah. centric question. And the example I, I often work with or coach to is around, I've had people ask me questions like, okay, what type of priority is this business issue for your organization? Mm-hmm. And it's one, two, three. Look, if, if you're not in the top three, it's ain't happening. Get it out of your forecast. This is a nurture conversation, not a, a closing conversation. It's, yeah, no, look, it's top three priority. Okay, when does the business need this fixed or need this addressed? Mm-hmm. When it's addressed in the next three months, the next six months, then you get your timeline. Um, is there anything I need to be aware of before we go and tailor our approach to this? Anything else I need to be aware of? Whether that's other projects that are going on that will be competing for resources, whether that's year-end, whether that's an audit, whether that's CapEx v. OpEx, whether that's budget wouldn't restrict, what is it? That type of questioning will get you everything you need to know. But as the, what I normally say is that if you ask a question and the answer to the question benefits you, it is mm. not a customer-centric question. If you ask the question and the answer to that question benefits me, is a customer-centric question. And I will talk about my business until the cows come home. What I won't do is talk about your business, which is typically what salespeople, sometimes salespeople confuse. The types yeah. of questions they're asking to benefit them, that's about talking about your business, not talking about mine. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. Declan, we're almost at time. And um, I guess a, one last question um, I'd like to leave as a takeaway for the audience been working with huge amount of salespeople at the top of their game, you know, for, for many years now. And you've seen a lot of, you know, what the issues are that prevents people from really being able to engage with confidence at this uh, C-suite level, particularly in relation to CFO conversations. If there was one thing that you could pick out above all else that you think would make the biggest difference to people when they're approaching a CFO, from the experience you've had and what you've observed with salespeople, what would that one thing be? Be curious. And that kind of link to that look to inspire, not impress. I mm-hmm. really do think it's, it's I, as I said, as a CFO, I don't expect salespeople to know as much as I do about my area of specialization. And I'll help you. I'll forgive you that unless you put yourself forward as an expert. Then I'll test you. Because if you're telling me you know what I know or you know better than me, which is what sometimes they now I'll test you. And now it's combative, which is not great. Not very great. But it's that big curious. Best question I was ever asked, hands down. I had a particular consultant had been trying to see me for about three months. And he had done work into our organization. He had people on the inside who worked for me, who I knew, respected, lobbying me to talk to this person. I wouldn't talk to them. I knew what they did. My view on what they did was they're a Rolls-Royce. We didn't need a Rolls-Royce. We needed something more basic. We may eventually need a Rolls-Royce, but we needed something more basic to begin with. So I never got to them. I never spoke to them. Then I agreed to speak to them. I gave them 30 minutes in my office on a Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock, and they turned up, and I said, 
shoot. They said, no. And I went, what do you mean no? They said, it's not how I worked it. I said, well, how did you work it? They said, well, your permission, I'd like to ask a question or two. I said, okay, ask away. He said, I've been trying to get to see you for three months. You're a difficult man to get to see. But you agree to me today. Why today? I went into my little bit of it. Well, I thought you were a Rolls Royce. We didn't need a Rolls Royce. Uh, we needed more basic model. Da, 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 da. I said, okay, all due respect. And that wasn't answering my question. Why today? Do you now need a Rolls Royce? I said, I do. Tell me why you need a Rolls Royce. And we got into the conversation. It was we were after we were doing huge level of acquisitions at the time. We were after buying two companies which we were trying to synergize with their cross their specialization, and it was hitting cultural issues. Bang, bang, bang. It was and it's killing our, our productivity and our profitability. And I went and I explained a bit about that, and he went, Okay, I understand. He said, Now let me ask you one more question. You know enough about what I do to believe we can add value to this. I said, I do. They said, Well then. With your permission, with the time we have left, I'd like to find a starting place rather than me trying to tell you a lot of stuff that you already know about us. He said, does that make sense to you? I said, it does. And we found a starting place. Whole meeting took 12 minutes. Beautiful. Beautiful. And then I pushed up. Now, look, exactly. Didn't sign a PO then and there, but that's where we're now working together to find the right thing as opposed to what I say, blindfolded darts, which Eamon used to do, you know, here's the solution, and you hope some of it sticks somewhere along the way. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, for me, was real collaboration, was real partnership, and it was a very, very quick way to build trust and credibility. Yeah. I love this. It goes back to something you said earlier on, that your credibility is built through the questions that you ask rather than what you, what you tell. I think a lot of the time... What I've noticed with uh, sales reps approaching CFO conversations in particular, they're so worried that they don't have enough, you know, of a pitch to be able to offer when they go in to see the CFO. And rather than just, as I said, leaning into that curiosity, um, the CFO is not going to expect you to be a finance person. What they are expecting is somebody who can really come in and get to an understanding as to what's most important for them and then be able to make sure that they tailor a solution that takes that into account, yeah? And 100%. You can only do that through asking questions, yeah? Absolutely. Now, there's a, some preparation you can do for it. So mm-hmm. turning up and saying, I don't know, I, one-on-one is, is three, I don't know, I can't count. I go, you know, having no sense of what's going on is crazy. Like, you do need some level of knowledge. And, but it's this plenty of stuff out there. Like, there's, I mean, the stuff we do in our workshops, it's really, it's not about, as I said, we don't analyze financial information to find answers. We do it to find questions. So that if the customer starts talking CapEx or OpEx, if they start talking a different investment appraisal models they use, then you lean in rather than leaning out. Because the one thing is for sure, how a customer measures the success of a project or whether a project will go ahead or not, they use investment appraisal models. Mm -hmm. That's different uh, what business justification often salespeople put together which is here's the here's the features or here's the benefits even the benefits even tying into it they often come up with a with an overly complex way or with a so over ambitious way that says you know ooh, this time next year rodney will be billionaires or, or wherever you want to go mm-hmm. whereas for me having a level of understanding of that you know and it is breaking it down as i say should you do the project we believe yes who should you structure to do yeah. Let them explain. And if they start, because we do, look, every profession has its own language. Accountancy is no different. We have a completely different language, which we use to protect our industry. 
and we pretend it's not. That's typically why these things are done. Uh, but it is a different language. But you can learn. There is a cheat that you can learn so that you don't run away from these conversations. You lean in. The customer will explain it. Or often, they even find a solution. Yeah. One of my mentors once said to me, uh, the quality of your experience in the field, Aluba, as a sales rep, will be down to the quality of the questions that you ask. You know, And I always say that when it comes to establishing empathy with the client, it's about communicating our understanding to them in a way that they feel understood. And so open questions that are tailored based on an understanding of the client's business, so as I said, using the data to look for questions, as you say, it goes, goes really such a long way to do that. So Declan, fantastic uh, to have the opportunity to speak with you today. And when people are curious to interact with you, what's the best way to reach you these days? Well, look, you'll find me on LinkedIn or my, you can connect with me there-cfowhisperer.com. Perfect. And we'll put that in the show notes. And, and just to say that Declan's also an associate here at Vivid Imagination. So myself and Declan do sessions together with sales teams as well, where we really look to help them address this skill set that's required when it comes to finding that way to really engage with uh, impact at the C-suite level. So Declan, thank you so much for your time. And uh, we'll hopefully have an opportunity to bring you back on the podcast at some stage in the future. Brilliant. Always a pleasure, my friend. All right. Cheers. Bye. Yeah. <laughs>